Welcome, all you wonderful listeners. This is Julie Baumgartner, and welcome to another episode of Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Today on Rise Up, our guest is Scott Martin, and we will be discussing the history of Israel. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Julie. It's nice to be here, and I'm really looking forward to discussing about Israel. I know we tried to connect back in mid-May of this year, and it didn't happen, but I am happy that you are with us now. Yes, it's a joy to be here, and our my wife and I are getting ready to move back to Israel, so it's really good timing. And I have asked you here, let's give some relevance to our listeners as to why you are uniquely qualified to discuss this subject. Well, qualification is always a subjective understanding, but I'll do my best to try to give some credence to maybe why I'm qualified to speak about Israel. First and foremost, I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. So I've been a student of the Bible since I was a little boy. Then I went to Bible college, have an undergraduate degree within Bible, and then a graduate degree in the Bible, and most of the Bible is about Israel. Then back in 2010, my wife and I and my two children moved to Israel. I was there on a journalist visa, and during the nine years in which we lived there, my wife got her master's degree at Tel Aviv University, and right now she's about to be enrolled at Bar Ilan University in a PhD program. And so we're getting ready to go back four to five years living within the country. And there is a great love on our part for the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know if that qualifies me, but there has always been a love and an affection and a focus upon Israel. Can you have an understanding of Israel without the Bible? I I don't believe so. I don't think you can understand modern-day Israel without studying its history from a biblical perspective. If you take away the Word of God, and it's just about modern-day Israel going back to the late 1800s and, and looking at the history of building up to 1948, you will have very little perspective of all the arguments and dynamics within the country. So where do you want to begin on the history of Israel? Let's just dive in. That's a good question. Okay. I think I will not start with Abraham, but I'll start with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Abraham precedes that time frame in which God promised him from a biblical perspective a day that his descendants would live within this land. Now, we know they were in Egypt later on. They were in slavery. God brought them out of Egypt. And now with the promise that he made to Abraham in the 14th century, really early 15th or late 15th century, early 14th century, they're going to enter into the land of Cana. And Cana was a name, a generic name for the whole land, but it was also a specific name to one of the people groups within the land. By 1375, the 12 tribes of Israel have come into the land and settled within the land under a leader named Joshua. From 1375 all the way up to present day, 2021, there have always been Israelites, the Hebrew people, Hebrew people became the Israelites, 
and later on known as the Jewish people, have always been in the land. So let me say that again, from the 14th century BC all the way to the 21st century AD, there has always been a presence of the Jewish people within the land. And so when we look at that, this, most people look at modern day Israel and they think, well, Jews came back to the land and stole this land from the Arabs that they call Palestinians. And we'll talk about that later because they're not Palestinians, stole this land and took it from them. That is as far from the truth as you can possibly be from a historical perspective. So let me say it again, from 14th century BC, all the way to the 21st century AD, the Israelites have been in this land. So I guess because I've, I have been trying to research this subject prior to this podcast, and I think one of the major questions that I have regarding who has rights to Israel is whether it is origin of the occupants, or is it who has taken it by force? And is that a legitimate argument well, in this, in this equation? Yeah, so let's, let me think about that question a little bit. I'm not quite sure of how you're approaching it, but if we'll still look at it from a historical perspective, because the Jewish people have not taken this land by force. They have defended the land. And so let's go back. Israelites within the land, 14th century BC. In the 10th century BC, the land is divided into two different nations. That was in 930 BC into Israel, the Northern Kingdom and Judah, the Southern Kingdom. That's where the name Jew comes from, from Judah. The Assyrians came in and destroyed the Northern Kingdom in 721 BC. So in 721 BC, the Northern Kingdom of Israel disappears, but there are still Israelites within the land. Anytime that there is an invasion that comes, there's a destruction of that empire, but the people group in scattered forms remain within that land. And so 721, the Assyrians come and the Northern King Kingdom disappears as far as a nation in itself. The Southern Kingdom of Judah still exists and a lot of the North fled into the South. But in 586 BC, Judah is destroyed by the Babylonians. Now there is still a remnant of Jews within that land, a remnant of Israelis within the land, but as a empire, as a kingdom, those kingdoms are destroyed. So the Israelites, go ahead. So, so in 1721 was the Assyrian exile and some of the Israelis were, or Jews, were exiled to Assyria, and then in 586, some were exiled into Babylonia. Is that correct? That's correct. But not everyone. There were still occupants in Israel. Yes, that always is the understanding historically. The Jews never completely left the land. The Israelites never completely left the land. Now, later on, the Israelites are going to be known as the Samaritans because of the city of Samaria in the north. Uh, 
and the Israelites in the north are going to intermarry with different people groups that the Assyrians brought in. But some of them believe that they stayed only Israelites from that time point all the way to this day. A lot of the Jews fled into Egypt as well. So Babylon and in Egypt. And the, you have to remember the Israelites fled into the south as well. So in Judah, which was Judah and Benjamin and Levitical cities, you have all the tribes of Israel that is part of Judah. They go into Babylon, they go into Egypt, and there is a scattered remnant that remained within the land, but there's not a kingdom of Judah. There's not a kingdom of Israel. Those kingdoms have been destroyed, but there are small remnants that remained within the land. And what was what were those kingdoms then if they had been destroyed? Well, it came under Assyrian control later on under Babylonian control. After that, it's going to come the Medo-Persians. After that, Alexander the Great and the um, Greek Empire is going to take control of that land. For a short amount of time, for about 100 years, the Jews are going to revolt against the Greeks, and it's called the Hasmonean dynasty. And for about 100 years, they're going to regain sovereignty within the land. And that's going to bring in the Roman dynasty around 63 BC. And then the Romans come in and they are the world power, not just of that land. All these empires I'm mentioning are dominating that part of the world. And so I'm going to back up just a little bit because it's important to the story. When the Jews are taking off into exile into Babylon by the Babylonians, 586 BC, it was the third deportation of the Jews. There is another people group that was destroyed. It was their empire. They were the arch enemy of the Jewish people, and they had five cities. They had the city of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Goth. Those five Philistine cities were destroyed, and the Philistines, that's where the word Palestinians comes from, they are they disappear from the world scene. They're taken off into Babylon. They have fled into other countries and they no longer exist as a people group all the way to this day. And I'm gonna explain later on, there are no Palestinians at all. Can any of this be disputed? I mean, this is, are we talking biblical account or actual historical account? Actual historical account. Okay, thank you. There are no Palestinians. How did the word Palestine come back into the picture? All right, in 63 BC, the Palestinians, the Philistines disappear. They're no longer a people group that we can recognize anywhere in the world. But in 63 BC, the Roman Empire takes over the land. And in 70 AD, there's an uprising that takes place by the Jewish people, a revolt against the Roman Empire. Most of us know about this, and the Romans come in, and they take control of Jerusalem. They destroy the city. Jews are scattered. About a million Jews are killed at that time. Now, this is after the death and resurrection of Yeshua, of Jesus, the Messiah, and so About a million Jews are killed. There's a great scattering of the Jews. But remember, there are still Jews within the land. And Rome renames the land Palestinia 
after the Palestinians, the after the Philistines that were the number one enemy of the Jewish people in the past that have disappeared, but it was a way of mocking them by calling them Palestinians, by calling the land Palestine. And so, who did this? Say that again. Who did this, Scott? The, the Romans, the Roman okay. Empire. There's another uprising around 135 AD and about six to 700,000 Jews are killed by the Romans. And they are probably a greater scattering took place of the Jewish people in 135 AD than in AD 70. Most people do not know about the Bar Kokhba rebellion. But that scattering that left very few Jews within the land. But there was a strong Jewish presence within the land. In certain cities, there has always been that presence of the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people within the land. So the the name of the land is changed to Palestinia by the Romans to mock the Jewish people about a people group that does not even exist anymore. But from a historical perspective, they were the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And what what area and what area did that encompass? The land that we look at today, all the land that we're looking at today that we call the Holy Land, going all the way up to Lebanon, going all the way down to the Red Sea, going all the way over to the Dead Sea, uh, to the west, the Mediterranean, to the Jordan River. All this land that we look at today was Palestine, Palestinia by the Romans to mock the Jewish people. In fact, the Palestinians historically were the Jewish people. It was a mocking term by the Romans, and they were called Palestinians. So where did the Arabs come into the picture? Seventh century AD, there was the Arab invasions into the land. Muhammad unified the Arab clans. They became a great army. They conquered all the way to the east, all the way to Persia, and all the way over to the Mediterranean. They took control over the land and eventually over to North Africa and came into Europe as well and conquering by the sword. In fact, in the first 500 years, they wiped out half of the Christian population in the world. And so you're looking at an invading force that came in and they're Arabs. They never ever called themselves Palestinians. They were Arabs. That would have, been, would have been an offensive term to them. So they would call the Jewish people Palestinians to mock them. So the Arabs come in and they take over the land from the 7th century AD. And that was empires from the outside, always ruled from the outside, never Arabs within the land, but always outside empires. Now, is this around the time that Islam was founded? Yes. Yes. The beginning of Islam is usually understood of Muhammad's move to Medina. And I, hopefully I've got my the correct date. It's around 621, 622 AD. And from that point on, we see this expansion of Islam by the sword through Muhammad by a united Arab world that is starting to conquer all of the Middle East, into Europe, 
North Africa, all the way over to Persia, all the way eventually over to India. And then it's going to expand even beyond that. So what happens? So they attempt to conquer by the sword. Well, I think in the first hundred years, Islam conquered by the sword with 76 wars. And that's how Islam spread. Uh, it spread around the world and it conquered the land that we know today as Israel by the sword, by coming in with conquering armies. So the, the land of what we call Israel today goes back and forth all the way up until the turf, fighting for this land by outside empires, either Arab nations, Arab empires, fighting against European nations that are trying to take back over the land. And we're looking at the Crusades. Some of you have studied the Crusades of the land going back and forth. And then peace treaties are signed and agreements are signed. And then later on, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire becomes the caliphate for the Muslim world. And it's going to take over Islam for about a 400 year time period. And it's going to rule the land from the 16th century AD all the way up until the 20th century AD around 1917. And a few years later, it's going to rule the land until the British are going to take over and it's going to be known as the British Mandate after World War I. One thing I want to emphasize is all of these empires are ruling the land from the outside. Okay. And explain, that was one of my questions, how did Britain acquire that territory? Yes. After World War I, remember it was the Turks that were fighting with Germany, not Nazi Germany, but the First World War was the nation of Germany and the Turks were in alliance together. And after they lost the war, they lost territory that they were ruling outside of their natural borders. The Ottoman Empire falls. And now who's gonna rule this land, who's going to be in charge because who's in the land? You have Arabs and you have Jews in the land. And remember, the Jews go all the way back to the 14th century BC. The Arabs go back to 7th century AD. The Arabs are the majority. And uh, sometimes the Jewish population rises and becomes very strong through the centuries severe persecution comes against them, their numbers go back down. But the Jewish people have not been in charge of the land going really back to the Hasmonean period from the second century BC all the way to the first century BC that they have really control of the land as a people ruling the land, but they've always been there. It's always been ruled by outside sources. And so now you have Jews and Arabs. Arabs are the majority and Jews are the minority. And the British are taking control of the land in order to be not so much the rulers, but to govern the land for a, an appointed time by the United Nations. And it's called the British Mandate. You also had the French Mandate that was up in Lebanon and Syria. Okay. So when you look at what is going on, that's in 1917. Prior to that, in the 1800s, the Turks who are in control start selling land to the Jewish people that are in Europe. 
the Jews in Europe, some of them mainly from Eastern Europe are wanting to come out and to come back to the land and to develop the land. What does the land look like? It is completely desolate. In fact, Mark Twain writes about it. I forget the year in the late 1800s. The Holy Land is a dump. There's nothing there. If you'll ever see some photographs of it, it's just undeveloped everywhere you go. It would be one of the last places in the world you would want to move to. Even Jerusalem, I've seen photographs of it. And it's just barren. It's desolate. And you see some buildings, but not any trees. There's not any agriculture. And so the Jews start coming back in the late 1800s, and they start building what is called the kibbutz, kibbutzim, little communities. And they would go to the north, go to the south. They would go over the land. This land was sold by the Turks. And they would go and start developing the land. To give you an example of that, up in the north, it was basically a swamp up in the north, the northern part, what we call the Upper Galilee. And they started draining the swamp by di different methods. And they started planting up in the north, planting trees, developing agriculture. Sometimes they came under heavy attack from Arab villages because they were really developing the land and becoming successful with it. And through these kibbutzims and mushavims later on, the whole north part of Israel just came to life. What used to be a swamp, which used to be a place nobody would move to because of malaria, cholera, typhoid, disease, now is one of the most beautiful places you would ever visit. But it, it came as Jewish pioneers legally buying land from the Turks and developing land and throughout all of Israel, developing the nation legally as they're coming back, joining the Jews that are already back in the land and the land starts coming back to life. Now, Julie, one other thing that happens during that time as Israel is developing, it's not called Israel, it's called Palestine. Remember that's a mocking term. Arabs from all over the Middle East start moving back to the land or start moving to the land, not back to the land, but they're coming there because this is the most exciting place in the Middle East concerning jobs and technology. And what, what is happening is it's an economic boom that is developing and the Arab population swells by five times its size in the same time that Jews are coming from Eastern Europe primarily back into the land because the land is coming back to life. Now, is this during what is what was called the Zionist movement? Yes. Have, okay. Explain. Yeah. <clears throat> explain the intention behind that. Right in Europe, the Jews were severely persecuted, and uh, the Zionist movement was built by secular Jews. Really, came out of secular Jews. What preceded it was Christians looking at the scriptures and saying. Why are you here? Why aren't you back in your own land? And that preceded the secular Zionist movement. The Jews in Europe who were heavily persecuted, they were very successful, and then it would be put down. They wanted to go to a place where they could have self-determination. 
where they could look at their future and say, we're not going to rise to this point and then persecution is going to come. We're not going to have another Spanish Inquisition or the pogroms that we see in Russia or Eastern Europe. And that predates the Holocaust that's coming. So they want to have a place of their own. And the rightful place is to go back to the land that they lived in for thousands of years that they were forcefully taken out of that land. So a movement developed called Zionism going back to Zion. And so they started buying land from the Turks legally. And so you look at the city of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is one of the prettiest modern cities in the whole world today. The Turks sold the Jews this land that's part of Jaffa with a understanding or a phrase, what will the Jews do with this sand? They're buying sand from us. And they started coming back, arriving on the shores of Jaffa, not knowing what they had bought from the Turks. But if you look at the city of Tel Aviv today, that's what the Jewish people did with the sand dunes that today is Tel Aviv. It's a beautiful city. It's a modern city. It has all the technology of one of the most thriving cities in the world today. But they bought that land, developed that land, and they're growing. And they're developing the whole nation is coming back to life again. A land that was desolate is coming back to life. So who's... Let's reiterate something. Who is really... Israel at that point, who who basic who basically owns it? It's under British rule. Yes, it's under British rule. It's called Palestine. Remember, going all the way back to the Romans, mm-hmm. but it's under what's called the British Mandate, and the British allow Jewish immigration back into the land. Prior to that, it was the Turks in control, and the Turks were selling land to Jews to come back, and now the same thing is happening under the British. And it was called the Balfour Papers, the Balfour Papers of Jews being allowed to come back into the land, join Jews that have always been in the land, and to develop the land. And And so the land's coming back to life. Okay. In my notes, I had that that also included what was called Transjordan. Yes, that's correct. The land that was initially looked upon of the Jews coming back and developing that one day could be part of a future Israel was much larger than what they were finally allotted in 1948 by the UN. So at that point, under Britain rule, they allowed Turks and Jews to own land. Who else? Well, the Turks were an outside empire ruling the land. So what you had in the land were Arabs and Jews. Okay. So Arabs and Jews primarily is what you have within the land. Going all the way back to the 7th century AD when the Arab invasions came into the land, you also had a European population because of the Crusades, but that died out and that fizzled out after several centuries. So basically, you're dealing with Arabs and Jews in the land. Okay. And then we'll just continue. What happened around 1920? Okay. Yes. Let's go back to 1917. Okay. Because the Balfour Papers have been developed. Jews are coming from Europe, joining the Jews within the land. 
The land is coming back to life. Arabs are flocking from the Middle East into the, into the land because of the job opportunities. This was a place you could make a great living because technology is coming and agriculture and all of these kind of things. So the, the nation is booming, but the Jewish population is rising to a point that the Arab population is getting really concerned. So they start putting a lot of pressure on the British to stop the immigration of Jews from Europe into the land. And they have a lot of influence because Nazi Germany is on the scene. And the Arab world is at the point that they may join Nazi Germany in this war. And where would that leave the British at that time? It would leave them in a very difficult situation if they have an ally with all the Middle East and all of the Arabs. And the Mufti, the leader of Jerusalem, the Arab leader, is very pro-Nazi Germany. And so, in fact, he gets exiled and uh, is in Europe, and Hitler gives him a base as well within Europe, and he fights with Nazi Germany. There's a lot of dispute whether or not he was part of the final solution, but he met with Adolf Hitler a week before the final solution was put into place, and that is the extermination of all the Jews within Europe. So you have this pressure by the Arab community, the Arab people within the land to stop the Jewish immigration. And that takes place about 20 years later, around 1937 through 1939, and it's called the White Papers. And that caught the Jewish people in Europe isolated them within Europe. And if they didn't get out to America or flee to England or flee to the Holy Land, which is called Palestine, then they were stuck within Europe and most of them were going to die. They didn't see it at that time, but they knew that there was danger with Nazi Germany. And they were verbalizing the extermination of the Jewish people. And when people started uh, verbalizing that, you have to take it seriously. And so as Jews are trying to get out, then they get become prisoners within Europe because of the white papers that wouldn't allow them to come back into the land. It also stopped them from going, not the white papers, but Nazi Germany stopped the Jewish people from fleeing to America, to England, different places. And plus these countries put restrictions we can only allow so many immigrants per year to come in. And so they were captured within inside of Europe. And then we know the rest of the story, a great slaughtering of the Jewish people took place by Nazi Germany. Now that's leading up to the end of World War II. And this is very important because Coming up to World War II, the British are in control, and after the, world, after the war, they are going to remove themselves. They no longer want to have this responsibility of governing the land under the United Nations. It's a headache. It's something that they cannot, they don't see themselves perpetuating this for uh, a long time. It's time for them to leave. So the UN and the British propose a two-state solution. And I won't get back, I won't go into the Arabs were offered a one-state solution prior to that, but let's talk about the two-state solution. 
The Jews were given a little bit of land. The Arabs were given the majority of the land. And they would have two states and they could have two countries. The Arabs within the land had never had a country of their own. The Jews within the land have had a century, have had a history going back all the way to 14th century BC. So they're both offered land, a country, and the Jews accept and the Arabs do not accept. And they say, we will never allow the Jews to have their own country. And so when the British pull out, war has already started. And here are the Arabs within the land with an alliance with all the Arabs in the Middle East, also friends in Egypt and North Africa. They never thought that they would ever lose this land to a minority of Jewish people and who live in these communities, but are well-organized, well-disciplined, and uh, they're unified, but the Arab clans are not unified. They, they don't trust each other. They're, they have uh, friction and conflict that go back centuries between one clan and another clan. And in 1948 or prior to 48, when the war broke out, the Jewish people won the war. And what is important for us to understand, they could have taken so much more land that they had, but they stayed primarily within the allotted land of the 1948 agreement. They could have taken all the way to Damascus if they wanted to. That's how severely they defeated the Arab uh, nations. And we're not just talking about the Arabs within the land, we're talking about all the Arab nations. At that time though, Jordan, who is the main opposition, takes the city of Jerusalem and all the Jews are kicked out of Jerusalem completely. And they take uh, Jerusalem and they maintain certain territories that is known as the West Bank of Jordan. And that's how you get the terminology, the West Bank. So the Arabs control Jerusalem, they control the West Bank and all the way over to Persia, Iran, you have this Arab empire that's Islamic, that is Muslim, that is controlling. But for the first time, going all the way back to the Hasmonean dynasty, the Jews have their own country within the land. And it's just a little slither of land, little small piece of land that they can have self-determination. And they were okay with that. The Jewish, the Jewish people mm-hmm. were okay with that. They, you know, I'm sure it was heartbreaking that they lost the city of Jerusalem completely because such a thriving Jewish community in that city that goes back for over 2,000 years, goes back to 3,500 years, and they're all kicked out of the city, the old city. And so there was some heartbreak, but to think about this, coming out of the Holocaust where six and a half million Jews are murdered, the Jews that have always been in the land, seeing for the first time, going all the way back to the Hasmonean dynasty, that they have self-determination, they have their own country. Tel Aviv is their capital, that, that place that was just sand becomes their capital and the Jews live again as a nation, as a people group. And so, yes, they were excited. The Arabs were not because they never thought that they would be defeated by a small minority 
of Jewish people and the armies that they had, the army that they had. So they, they never could fathom that that would ever take place. In fact, in their theology and Islamic theology, you're to wipe out the Jew. You are to drive them into the sea. That's their eschatological view of the end times. And wherever you find one hiding, kill them, throw them into the sea. That's part of their own theology. So with these small clans of Jewish populations coming together, unified, defeating the whole Islamic Arab world, they never fathomed that that would ever take place. Now I wanna say this also, Julie, these Arabs in the land in the West Bank in Jerusalem, they did not call themselves Palestinians. That's something they would have never called themselves. They called themselves Jordanians or Syrians or Arabs, but never Palestinians because that's not who they are. And so at this point, did it become known as Israel again? Because they had a declaration of independence, didn't they? Yes, it became known as Israel and Jordanian, Jordan. And the Arabs within the land that's living within the land, that was the West Bank of Jordan. So this is what we're dealing with is two nations, Jordan and Israel within the land. So that's going to continue all the way up. We have to come up to 1967 because in 1967, there is an alliance between Egypt, Jordan, other Arab nations that they are going to take over the, the land. And they have backing from many countries. They have such, they have accumulated such machinery that they feel like that they're going to destroy the Jewish nation called Israel. And so they cut off the canal from Israel, which is an act of war. And they are on the borders with all of their armies and Israel does a preemptive strike. And, and in that war, which is called the six day war, they not only defeat all of these armies, but they retake Jerusalem and they haven't been in control of Jerusalem since 70 AD. Now it's 1967 and they, and they take what's called the West Bank from Jordan. Jordan loses the West Bank and they take what's called the Golan Heights, which was under control of Syria. And they take the Sinai Peninsula, which was under the control of Egypt. So in six days, again, this small nation who is defending itself against aggressors takes all of this land. And that is present day Israel, except for the Sinai. The Sinai was given back to Egypt in 1978, part of the Camp David Accord. And Gaza was supposed to be part of Egypt, but, Gaza, but Egypt said, we will not take Gaza. And so Israel gave back the Sinai to Egypt. And officially in 1978, Egypt recognizes the Jewish state as Israel or Israel's right to exist. And so does Jordan. They signed a peace treaty there in 1978, and America was the one that brokered this peace treaty. So Jordan and Egypt officially recognize Israel's right to exist. Now, can we go back ahead up? With your Some, yeah. I, something important happened, I think, in 1964 with the PLO being founded. 
Yes, which was a terrorist organization, mm-hmm. Palestinian Liberation Organization. And now during that time is when the word Palestine is coming back. The Arabs in the land are taking this word Palestine. I think it's in 1968, 67 or 60, no, 68 is when it becomes their official term. So instead of calling themselves Arabs, they call themselves Philistines because Palestine goes back to the Philistines and they're not Philistines, they're Arabs. But what that does, it gives them a local identity where Palestinians that's separate from the Jordanians or the Syrians or the Lebanese or the Egyptians or the Saudis, and we can go on and on. And so if you look at all the Middle East, it's all controlled by the Arabs. But now by taking the name Palestine, Palestinians, it gives them their own identity and it was a political move. And the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was a terrorist organization, was there to free Palestine and to come back to that second, well, that two-state agreement, that two-state solution that they had rejected and create out of the West Bank and out of Gaza a new nation called Palestine. And so that was the whole thrust of it and terrorist activity and and bombings took place all around the world. Everybody knows about what happened at Munich. That was the Palestinian Liberation Organization that was part of that. They had a leader. His name was Yasser Arafat. And so from this organization comes the PA, the Palestinian Authority that later develops. And it goes from a terrorist organization to a political organization And it's been the main influence over the West Bank of going all the way back from its beginning, like you said, and back in 1964. But it was to put pressure on the world to allow the Arabs to have their own nation, which is called Palestine. And Palestine would be limited to those two areas? Well, it wouldn't include Israel or they wanted Israel Well, the the goal was to take this land to create a base that later on, if they could officially have this land to later on use it as a base of attack against the rest of the Jewish people and of Israel. So that's my belief system. That's what happened in Gaza as well. So, but initially that's what they're asking for. The West Bank, Gaza, the Golan Heights, what was lost in 67, what they were asking is that Israel go back to the 1948 borders. If you go back to the 1948 borders with hostile nations all around you, Israel becomes completely defenseless. They cannot defend themselves. They would have to have outside forces to defend them because of the armies and the missiles that they have to Today, all of Israel could be destroyed in a short amount of time. So here, this is what they're asking for. In my personal belief, it's to have a foothold in order to eventually take over the whole land. Okay. And I'm sorry I interrupted you and backed you up. <laughs> oh, no, you're you, doing well. You, you were discussing the Six-Day War and then what happened after that. 
Well, after the Six Day War, which was in 67, they again, they gained the Golan Heights, the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza, the Sinai. The Sinai is returned back to Egypt in 1978 in a, pre, a peace treaty. So they gain a lot more territory, which officially under international law is their land. There is no occupied territory. It's hip, hypocritical for the nations, the UN to call it occupied territory, because if you, if other nations are aggressors against you, and then you defend yourselves and take land in the process by international law, that land belongs to you. If it's occupied territory, there's land that we need to give back to Mexico here in the US. Russia needs to give back those islands that it took from Japan. We can go on and on. Those we don't call California or parts of California occupied territory, do we? Are those islands uh, that Russia have in the Pacific as occupied territory? But the UN and these nations continue to call the West Bank occupied territory, and it's not by international law. So why did that happen? Why did they do that? Why did the nations? Mm-hmm. Why did the UN do that? Because it's highly political. It's 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 political in every aspect of the of the UN. The Arab nations have a lot of influence. They have a lot of weapons economically to use against Israel. And if anybody thinks that the UN is an honest organization, you're, you're living in a fantasy world. If you look at people that speak on human rights around the world that are on these panels about human rights and women's rights and things of this nature, some of the countries and some of the people are the worst in these areas in human rights, but they're sitting in positions of authority in the UN on these issues. And I think we all know that. So there's so much politics that is involved. But thankfully, politically, the US during our last administration recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, recognized Golan Heights as part of Israel, recognized that this is their territory. And so I'm very thankful to that because that is the right historical perspective. However, let's go from 67, 1973, they were attacked again. It was known the Yom Kippur War. Israel was almost destroyed in that war. And so by and, God, and who attacked? The main, the main attack is the whole Arab world. You've got to understand in all of these attacks, you may have, may have Egypt and you may have Syria and you may have Jordan as leading the attack, but you have to think, this is all the Arab world, all the Islamic world that is coming, coming together for these attacks. So they caught them off by surprise because it was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the whole nation shuts down during that day. And they were, especially up in the north, they were almost down in the Sinai where Egypt was attacking. My landlord showed me his scars. He was almost cut into two in the tank battles that they had to go through. And it's incredible how they were protected during this time because they were caught off guard and this nation was almost destroyed. And they had very few allies. How did Israel acquire their military? You remember I talked about the kibbutzim, the Mm -hmm. kibbutz that developed 
from the very beginning, when they developed these communities in the late 1800s, they came, they developed a trade, they developed agriculture, they began to develop the land, but they also had to protect themselves because the Jews within the land were always getting attacked. So they had to, de to develop a defense force for their own community. And this, as people, as the nation develops and comes back to life, a defense force is developing naturally. And many times they didn't have sufficient machinery to fight and they couldn't find anyone to help them. And I know with the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia of that time, that they at one time helped them to get some armory and some military might in order to fight the 1948 war because they did not have sufficient machinery to fight this fight. So over time, they're developing their military to the point today, it is one of the strongest militaries in the whole world. It's the strongest military in the Middle East because of its air force. Its air force is superior. I mean, it could wipe out Iran tomorrow the Air Force of Israel, but they don't do that. They're always defending. They're never the aggressors. The aggressors are always saying, we're going to destroy. One day we will destroy you. But Israel just defends. I cannot think of any time that, that they have been in a position that they're not defending. They're defending themselves against aggressors from the outside that have the mentality we want to commit genocide against them. And how did they learn to govern? How did they form their government? Uh, you, you're talking about in Israel? Through elections. They have the parliament system that you see in England. That's because of the British mandate. So when they went to form their government, they have free, fair elections that Arabs within the land can vote just as well as Jews within the land. Jews within the Middle East could not even exist today. They would be killed. But you have a million and a half Jews right in to what we call Israel proper today. And they have all the freedom and all the rights that anybody else does within the land. So they are elected governments. They are elected officials. They have their own government parties, and they have, just like we do here in America, they are a democracy. And, and how, how did they acquire funding for their military? That's a very good question, because if you go back to the late 1800s, they are developing economically. The British mandate is there, but they are developing economically as a people. There are Jews from the outside that are helping them to develop economically. Like there is one Jew that funded the uh, building of 10 cities. Rothschild from France helped fund and, and to give the money to develop 10 cities within the nation of Israel. So as they're building and their wealth is building, they're acquiring and they're also producing some of their own military as well in order to grow a little bit at a time. You do not become a great army just overnight. It's a little bit at a time, a little bit of economic growth, a little bit of population growth, stability politically, and then you start to grow to where they are today. 
Again, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. You were discussing Yom Kippur? Yes. And That's then, in 1973. And then what happened with the Camp David Accords? The Camp David Accords was Jimmy Carter was president. About the only thing from my perspective Jimmy Carter ever did that had any significance. But he put together the Camp David Accord that brought Egypt and Jordan together with Israel. And Egypt and Jordan recognized the Jewish people and Israel's right to exist. That had not happened prior to that time. And part of that was that there was peace agreements that took place. Part of that is the Sinai was given back to Egypt. Gaza was supposed to go back to Egypt as well, but God, but Egypt said, we will not take Gaza. It's too much of a headache. And so Israel got stuck with Gaza again. And so Gaza became part of what's known as the West Bank and part of what used to be part of Jordan. Jordan did not regain that land, but they did regain some of their borders. And there was an alliance, a peace alliance between Israel, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt in the 1978 Camp David Accord. Now let's, let's move on to the first Lebanon war. I think it was around 1982. Forgive me if I get some of my dates not exactly right. That was with South Lebanon with a group called Hezbollah. 2006, I believe, was the second Lebanese war. And that again is with Hezbollah, which is South Lebanon. South Lebanon is not ruled by the Lebanese government. It's ruled by an army called Hezbollah, a terrorist organization that exists for the purpose of the annihilation of Israel. That's why they exist. If you go to South Lebanon, it, their taxes go to Hezbollah. They do not go to Lebanon. So it is completely under control of this army, a powerful army. So you've had those two wars, plus, and I don't remember the date of when this happened, plus Gaza breaks away from the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank and forms another government that comes into power called Hamas. And Hamas, in its own constitution, exists for the genocide of the Jewish people. They turn Gaza into a military base, just like Hezbollah in the north, and they exist for the destruction of Israel. So you have Hezbollah in the north, you have Gaza in the south. Both of them exist for the destruction of Israel. Both of them are giving, getting heavy military aid from a country called Iran. And all these missiles that are coming in to Hezbollah is coming from Iran. Iran is Shia. Iraq is Shia now. So it's going from Iran to Iraq to Assad. Assad is Shia in Syria. Even though they're the minority of the population, Assad is a Shia government and Hezbollah is Shia. So now upon the north part of the Middle East, you have a pipeline where Iran is bringing missiles across and setting up military bases with Hezbollah on the Lebanese and Syrian borders. And then you have Russia, who is an ally of Syria, an ally of Iran, and they are involved in this as well. In Gaza, Hamas is Sunni. 
But remember, Egypt is a, is a military coup that came into power, and it's not a religious government. But the Sinai is being ruled by what's called the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're Sunni as well. And so the missiles are coming by sea from Iran through the Muslim Brotherhood into Gaza, and that's how they're getting these thousands of missiles. And what are they getting these missiles for? They are getting these missiles to target the cities, the towns, and the civilians in Israel in order to provoke, provoke fear within them and to destroy these places. And that's what they have been doing ever since Hamas came into power. That's what's happening up in the north in the Lebanon-Syrian borders is Hezbollah with Iran is attacking Israel with missiles. I think last night there was some more missiles that came from Hezbollah into Israel. And when you look at Israel today, even though they have an agreement with Jordan and with Egypt, they're really surrounded by every side with enemies that are wanting for their destruction. Who are Israel's allies? It used to be America. America has always been a strongest ally. But when uh, President Barack Obama came into the into power, he was the first one that demanded that Israel go back to the 1948 borders. That's the first time that we were trying to pressure them to do that. And you saw a very staunch stance against Israel, that Israel must do what we're saying. Now, again, to go back to the 48 borders would leave them defenseless. They would have to rely upon the UN, upon America, upon Europe to defend themselves. And the Jewish people understand the last time we relied on others to defend us, look at what happened to us. Six and a half million people were slaughtered. Others were supposed to be defending us, but they didn't. So they understand they have to defend themselves. But Barack Obama said, you have to go back to the 1948 borders. Then Trump comes in, and I believe he has the right perspective because Israel is our ally, our true friend. It's a democracy in the Middle East. Take away from the biblical perspective. They have fair elections. They have a free society. So... President Trump comes in and he stands behind them fully. Now, as he's come out of office, we have that old administration, the Obama administration through Joe Biden coming in, and they're putting the same types of pressures upon Israel, but the rhetoric now against Israel from America, the anti-Semitism that's within the Democratic National Committee, that is their base now. And you hear this anti-Semitism coming from members within their own party. And who are their friends right now? I believe the only friends that Israel has is Christian conservatives in America and Europe and around the world are their only true friends that really are praying for them, understand their arguments, and they're supporting them. And I don't see any governments really standing strongly behind Israel at the present time. And my understanding is that under Biden now, he wants to help Iran, which is an enemy of Israel. Is that correct? 
Yes. Okay. okay. So here I'm trying to understand, help me understand, help our listeners to understand or correct us. You have, you have Israel and it, it's a country and it is, it has enemies all around, but why is it anyone else's business to come in and tell Israel what they should and should not do? You've asked the right question. I mean, we've been interfering, especially under Barack Obama's administration in Israeli politics, not just from a rhetoric standpoint, but from a financial standpoint. I mean, the DNC has been sending major amounts of money to opposition candidates to Benjamin Netanyahu to try to get him where he would not get reelected. So why are we interfering in their politics? Because the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, that whole mindset is that we want Israel to do what we want them to do. They're a sovereign nation. Why should we be dictating to our ally who is a free society that is the only democracy in the Middle East, true democracy, and trying to tell them, we want you to do what we, what we, want, you, we want you to do as we say. And we shouldn't be doing that. We should be supporting them. We should be helping them. They're a sovereign nation. We wouldn't let anybody else do that to us. So when Gaza sends thousands and thousands of missiles going to Jewish cities in order to destroy people, we're the ones speaking up and saying, don't retaliate. In America, we wouldn't allow one missile to be sent to one of our cities and not retaliate. So why are we interfering? Why are we, and the retaliation is not just from Democratic presidents. We have seen that from Republican presidents saying to Israel, don't retaliate because they don't want to see a full scale war to break out. But Israel is a sovereign nation. Israel has the right to defend itself. And we need to stand behind Israel because it is a nation that is our true friend. It is an ally in the Middle East. What is Israel's treatment of Palestinians? Well, the territory that we call the West Bank, that they're trying to call Palestine today, has been given by Israel the ability to have self-rule. So let's talk about Israel proper, not the West Bank, not Gaza, but what we see as Israel uh, proper, what we say inside of the green lines. There's about a million and a half Arabs within that land. And so the Arabs within that land, privately, if you talk with them and you ask them the question, if you had the ability to move to any Islamic country in the Middle East or anywhere in the world, would you rather live there or in Israel? They would say in Israel. Because they understand in Israel, they have rights that they would not have in those countries. That doesn't mean that there's not animosity within the Arab population. The Jews are highly advanced, highly educated. Even though you have the same opportunities for the Arabs, they feel like second-class citizens sometimes. So a lot of the Jews give millions and millions of dollars to help bring up the education levels, the economic situation of the Arabs within the land. Jews truly want to see the economic development on the same level that the Jews are having. 
yet it doesn't always take place. And in these societies, many times there's a lot of corruption within government. You, you want to look at corruption, you go to the West Bank, what they call Palestine today. Yasser Arafat at his death was the richest man in the world. And he was just a government leader. So there's so much corruption, all the money that goes into Gaza and the West Bank and to cities for development, so much of that goes into corruption. I go down to Jericho, which is in the West Bank, and drive through Jericho, and I know the millions upon millions of dollars that have been pumped into Jericho, and I look around and I see a dump. Where did all that money go? Well, it goes into a lot of corruption. If it goes down to Gaza, it goes into a lot of missiles, a lot of corruption. People are putting money into their pockets. There's not the accountability. So the Arabs within the land of Israel, proper Israel, as we understand it today, they have all of these opportunities, but yet sometimes they are not advancing on the same level, educationally, economically. And the whole nation of Israel wants to see that change. And so there have been not one, not two, but three Gaza wars. The, is that correct? Well, I don't know how they classify a war, but I can say this, there's always missiles coming. And uh, whether it's 2012, 2014, probably they're classifying a war when finally Israel has to go in and take out the missiles. And I don't know the exact number of how many times they've had to go in and take out the tunnels and the missiles and to defend themselves properly. But it's always under attack from Gaza. What do you think the solution is? I, I don't think that there is a political solution. I think it's going to get worse for Israel down the road, especially as we see the trends of where America is going. If you go on to the university systems in America, and you ask a young person about this issue, they will say, oh, it's how terrible how the Jews came and stole the land from the Arabs. They don't even know basic history, but they have been given a narrative that they have embraced. And so what far, is that narrative? Let, let's that, point that out. Let's yeah, That the Jews came and stole the land from the Arabs illegally, which I've gone, they- through, I've gone through the history a little bit of the history to show that that's not the truth. The Jews have been there from 14th century BC all the way to present day. So what do they base that narrative on? If it is not, if it is not historically accurate, where do they get that narrative? It's a narrative that comes, I think, primarily from the Islamic world that has gotten into our educational institutions and young people today have embraced it and there's a lot of anti-Semitism on the university systems that's growing. And it's unfortunate, but how I can explain it, look at the revisionist history that's going on for America today. And that revisionist history is building up hatred and and a narrative for our young people that they actually hate this country and think horrible things about this country. And I meet Uh, young people in the university system that say, I don't want to be a part of America. I want the whole system to fall apart. So this revisionist history young people have taken hold of, I think through our public education that is starting from kindergarten all the way through the university system, 
that they're getting a narrative that is not a biblical worldview. It's not an accurate worldview of history and they're embracing it and they will make statements and they don't even know where that statement comes from. And so I think in the future for Israel, it's going to get worse. Israel is going to have to get stronger. They have to defend themselves and they're not going to have many friends at all. And I encourage people that are listening to pray for the nation of Israel. That includes Jews and Arabs and other groups. Pray for this nation, pray for its protection, and pray that it will continue to have freedom in the Middle East. And it's the only place that truly has freedom in the Middle East. Thank you so much for being here. And you have been very concise in your historical account and it's not your historical account it is it is history so thank you and i also i open up the floor to you if there's something we have not covered that you think needs to be shared i give you that freedom to do so now okay i'll make one last statement you asked the question what is the answer i don't think there's going to be a political answer a military answer i think god has brought the jewish people from around the world back to the land to join the Jews that were there to rebuild this nation for a day of redemption from the inside out of the Jewish people. And Israel's only answer for protection is going to come through the Messiah. And, and that's what we see from a biblical worldview. And he will be their king, he will be their Lord, and he will rule over them, and he will shepherd them. And he's going to be the one that has the answer for this nation that everybody's going to hate and everyone's going to come against. But it is the focal point of God's eye. And what God is doing in Israel, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to pay close attention to what God is doing within Israel because biblical prophecy is coming alive right before your eyes. And when you see Jews starting to come to faith in their own Messiah, Yeshua, that they reject it, but now they're recognizing this is my Messiah, our Messiah. Wake up and see and recognize the season that we're in right now. If a listener is not a Christian, why should they care about Israel? It's, it's a good question, Julie. Why would they care about Israel? It's just another nation that doesn't really offer us very much. They don't have oil to export. They don't have, they are exporting a lot of the world's technology now, you know, but why would they be interested in Israel? I can't answer that because it's just a small nation, a third of the size of the state of Alabama. Why would they have any interest? But as a believer, as Christians, it is everything about the word of God and the Bible and end time prophecy. So for a non-believer, I don't know why they would be interested in Israel, but they should pay attention because God is doing something in this tiny nation. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time and just your, your thorough explanation of everything. I hope this enlightens listeners, and I hope perhaps it gives a new perspective to those who had no prior understanding. So thank you. Thank you, Julie. Thank you 
for listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Please subscribe. Also, leave a five-star rating if you listened on iTunes. And now, if you would like to partner with Rise Up so more quality content can be produced, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash riseupwithjulie. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be.